Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Chasing Giants podcast, episode 206 with Don Higgins. I'm Terry Peer. We're brought to you by Osseo Gear. Don, this episode will air on February 4th. And uh, we've had some great feedback the last couple weeks about different pictures and just talking about it. We got a couple today, but the the big thing today is we've gotten behind on some listener submitted questions. We hope to catch up on that a little bit tonight with some great questions. But before we do, dive us into your exploring the consulting trail and your big event in Iowa. I think you just rolled in in the middle of the night last night. I got home at 4.30 this morning. And uh, I had a gentleman showing up here. He was supposed to be here at 10.30 to uh, pick up a, a Genesis drill. My uh, buddy Kevin Miller. Absolutely. Yeah, And uh, so I, I, but I was out of bed by the time he got here. And I, I've been in front of my computer all day. I need to apologize anyone who has called or, or texted me. Got my phone right here. Guys, I, I, I just looked at it a little bit ago. I had 23 unanswered text messages and uh nine unanswered voicemails i'm gonna be on the road in the next couple days and i'll get to those i am so swamped i got a plan to do uh yet tomorrow for a property i looked at but uh, yeah i've been on i've been hitting it hard um the the folks in iowa treated me great but i started out the week in indiana i i did a property in indiana last monday then one in illinois on tuesday Wednesday, I drove to Iowa, had to drive uh, about a seven-hour drive to where I was going. Um, so I left home at noon and, and got out there um, Wednesday evening. Thursday, I looked at a property. Friday morning, I looked at a property. Friday night, I had the seminar, and then I drove home after the seminar. So I had a full week. I tell you, it's uh, it's it's a, I knew it was busy because I don't believe you and I talked or texted all week this week I, I don't i don't think we did uh maybe an email or two for real world stuff early in the week but i don't think we talked all week i mean both of us were absolutely going crazy this week yeah i know people see me posting on social media and they think that well he's posting on social media he must not have anything to do but what they don't realize is a lot of times i'm making those posts as i'm waiting in the fast food line at mcdonald's or something um, I, I try to, you know, make a, a post every day on social media, but they don't realize that some of those posts are made while I'm doing something else and, and, and not just sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. What people really don't know is he's really sitting on the can while he's making Facebook posts. That yeah, might happen know. once in a while, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we got a we got a big show. We're going to talk a little bit about our consulting. We got some pictures that you want to show and tell kind of the backstory behind. I've had, um, you know, one of the biggest things. You had a short video post. I think maybe it was on your social media or it was YouTube. I can't remember that really talked about access. And I was on two um, properties in the last week that had unbelievable access, and some of them were a little odd. 
I want to show those pictures. So let's talk a little bit about access after bit and then catch up on questions. But you picked a couple of questions. We're going to jump right in to, to share and tell the backstory. This one's the first one. I think it's kind of funny when you tell the backstory of this one. <laughs> so this was uh, the uh, at the event there in Iowa where I spoke last night. Um, we'd just come in from walking a property that I'd consulted on. That's why I'm in my camo. But I walked in and they had this little stage thing made for me. And um, they they literally rolled out the red carpet for me here, as you can see in this picture, the red carpet. And I don't know if it's an Amish thing or what. The Amish, I don't think I've ever heard the term, you know, roll out the red carpet. Because I, I was at an event um, a year or so ago. And, you know, these folks, I, I'd say all the time how great they, they just treat me. And and so I showed up at uh, this event to speak at, and I said, man, you guys just rolled out the red carpet for me, didn't you? you did. I mean, <laughs> and the guy, the guy looked at me and kind of puzzled look on his face, and he says, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I said, well, you're, you're treating me like a king when you roll out the red carpet. You're, you're giving me extra special care, but. I think they've caught so they, on. So, so they actually did it for this one. They went and they did. They carpet. actually rolled out the red carpet, <laughs> as you can see in this picture. <laughs> that's that's really funny. You know, we talk about these people um, that we go and we meet, and I feel bad, Don. This is one of the things that that it's humbling, and I'm so grateful. But it's like we go to someone's property, and they're our customer. We're there working for them. But yet they give us gifts. And I'm like, please don't. It's so weird. I'm sitting here looking for, look at this. We had a consultant client. His dad made me a homemade knife. He, he made this all from scratch. Even the leather work was made. I mean, it's like you go, another one, custom duck call, the name of their uh, hunt, the farm or the family farm with all their names are all signed by it. And it's just... Man, the people that we meet every day, and please, we don't expect anything, but I've had people carry baked goods, boxes mm -hmm. of Little Debbies. I've gotten about as many boxes of Little Debbies as Wes Delks has gotten rolls of toilet paper. It's it's amazing. Yeah, they, uh, just yesterday, for example, I started my day with an Amish home-cooked breakfast at Joe Stutzman. Um, one of the real world dealers there in Iowa, it said, you got to come early for breakfast. We want you to be here for breakfast. And so I show up, I had James Hyden with me. James is the new sales manager for real world. So James and I show up and, and I'm telling you, typically when I'm on the road like that, my breakfast is a drive through McDonald's breakfast. And boy, I was, they don't have cheeseburgers. So I'm, <laughs> I'm getting the sausage McMuffin, which is a breakfast version of a cheeseburger, but I showed up at Joe's house, and I'm telling you what, his wife is a fantastic cook, and she did not miss a beat. She had it all. I mean, biscuits and gravy and scrambled eggs and bacon, and, and then when, and it was fantastic too. And but then when we're done and we're getting ready to walk out the door, she's got a plate full of cookies for each of us. You know, you wrapped up here, you guys. Uh, these are for the road, and gave us a, a platter of cookies. And then I I get to the event and. I had uh, two different guys hand me some cash from my daughter and her medical bills. I had uh, a gentleman give me some 
uh, summer sausage that he just smoked like the day before he, he just made it with uh, venison and pork and uh it, it's one thing after another these people treat us so good it's almost embarrassing because i mean they, they, they're clapping for me when i'm at the it's it's embarrassing to be up there in front of all these people talking about deer hunting and they're clapping and giving you gifts but uh and, and the biggest thing they do though is the support that they showed i mean we, we've showed the babe video at the last three events and uh if you haven't seen that it's pretty touching i think we're going to show it at shipshawana as well and uh I, I think it's just uh i think it shows the human side that you know we're just we're simple country people we're, we're not any better than the people that we're trying to help and we go to speak at these events and we're not talking down to anybody i mean we're we're just simple country people and to be treated like a king is just a little bit uncomfortable to be honest about it yeah it's just it's awkward for me you know i've been in the business world and the sales world you know my entire career and when i'm the when i'm they're my customer and i'm there working for them but yet they come out with stuff it's just like i mean i don't want to insult them but it's it's just so humbling and it just is a testament to the type of people that that you know support us i mean it's no different for when people in northern indiana or illinois or tennessee heard that i went to work at cornerstone they started calling in ordering their forklifts or kevin miller the guy that bought the drill from you is the same same thing he, he bought stuff from us just to support us and our other ventures whether it's your daughter or whether it's my job mm -hmm. uh, just it's it's really humbling the uh, event last night was put on by uh, Joe Stutzman, who's one of our dealers, and Raymond Yoder, who is a dealer about 35 miles yep. away from Joe. And these guys went together, um, which just shows, you know, the kind of people they are because they're selling the same product. And instead of competing with each other and, and fighting for customers and, right. you know, being defensive about their business, these guys are working together. But it was so great that Raymond got up there at the beginning of the event and started talking about, you know, one of the things that attracted him to real world is he tries to do business uh, with companies with the, that have the same values that he does. And, uh, you know, when you're supporting you know, companies run by, by good people, um, you know, that money is going to things way beyond that company. Um, those people use their money to help others as well. And he, he had a real good talk, um, to, to lead off the evening. And I wish that uh, we would have recorded it for the whole world to see because he made some fantastic points. And that's what I see with a lot of our dealers is that they're good people trying to support other good people. Right. All right, well, I'm going to share a second picture with everybody and tell us a little bit about the story of this hedge apple tree. Well, that tree is in Iowa on a, about a 400 and some acre farm. And that tree does not look like much at the moment. That does not look like a place where you would put a tree stand and expect to kill a giant. But I, I told the client that there was a, well, that's James Hyden and I, James, the sales manager for Real World Night at this tree. And, and there was probably about, I think, eight different Amish guys following us around that day. And 
are leading us around their farm. And uh, I told them we walked up to that tree, and I said, this is the spot I've been looking for, that this tree is it. You're going to shoot many giant bucks out of this tree. And uh, they're, they're all looking at me like, what the heck's so special about this tree? It's sitting out here in the middle of this open field. Yeah. And I said, well, well I, I see that tree five years from now. You see that tree today. I see what it's going to be. And uh, you, you can see that old fence right there that runs under that tree. And th this picture is not going to allow me to do it justice, what I'm going to try to lay out here in words. But the, uh, the other side of that fence um, from where we're standing that is all going to be switchgrass. And you can see the ribbon hanging on the branch of that tree. There's going to be a rope scrape hanging from there. And just off to the side, you can see that one fence post It is a corner brace post. The next post over is a gate. So we're going to open that gate, and we're going to, on the far side, right at where that gate is open, we're going to put a couple of uh, pear trees, two or three pear trees. But on this side of the gate, there's going to be a food plot, and there's going to be a strip of miscanthus across that open field that's going to run from that gate, like right at where the guy is taking the picture. And again, it's kind of hard to describe, but so those deer are going to go right through that open gate into that food plot from the switchgrass, but to help attract them to that open gate, we're going to have a rope scrape right on that tree branch, and we're going to have two or three fruit trees right there as well so they're going to step out of the switchgrass they're going to hit the rope scrape they're going to eat some fruit under those fruit trees and then they're going to walk out into a food plot that's been screened by miscantha so they're going to be comfortable doing it and if you could see the aerial view this is going to be a spot where many many bucks are going to be shot the access to it's going to be perfect coming across that wide open field it's going to be a direct stand here yep this, exactly this so you'll so then the wind so for people listening on the audio uh james and don are standing in the center of the frame the bucks are going to walk through the left side of the frame out of the switchgrass through the gate we're accessing from the right side of the picture with a miscanthus strip and i'm guessing don based on what i've seen here the wind is going to be blowing back out that miscanthus strip to the right side of the frame the the Yes, the, the wind will be blowing right out into that open field where we're standing. Yep. Dynamite spot, but this is this is a perfect analogy of what we talk about about you know, people go in and they look for sign and say I have to hunt where the sign is. You're picking mm -hmm. a spot that has access and we're creating habitat around the access. We're building a good stand site. The tree is there, the gate is there the opportunity for the food and the, the switchgrass is there. We're going to build this. Today, you know, the vast majority of deer hunters would not even look at that tree twice, and I can see why, but I'm looking at it five years from now. What are we going to build around that tree? And it all starts with access to that tree. We, we can get to that tree without being detected, and we've got some things there to work with. Uh, let's build around it and make a fantastic site but that's a, yeah that's going to be one of the better tree stand sites in all of, of iowa five ten years from now well let's look at another picture that was on a visit that i had in east or excuse me in western kentucky last week 
you haven't seen this, but what's your first thoughts on uh, explaining this one without even without even knowing where it's at? Well, I, I'm I'm not sure if I'm looking at the food plot, and I, I'm guessing this is the food plot in front yeah, of me. He's got, yeah, he's got clover right here. He's accessing yeah. from the left, the back of the photo. So he's he's got that screening with the miscanthus, and yeah. it looks like a 360 blind. So any deer in that plot cannot possibly see him, and it, it should be easy to even slip out of that blind and, and you know out of the off the farm without right. spooking those deer at all. So this is actually in the back of an ag field, and they can come up uh, from the. So if this this is picture is looking to the south. So set up with a westerly wind hunting from right to left, blowing out of the timber. Now, what our job, we, you know, this spot's already set up. This is going to be fourth year Miscanthus this coming year. This is the third year. Completely thickened up. It looks phenomenal. But what we want to do is enhance bedding very close to this food plot to where deer are more likely to be in it in daylight. The the deer are trying to travel a little bit too far to get to it, so we're going to improve the bedding around the backside in this case. But yeah, this is one of those deals, Don, where if somebody were to look at this uh, five, six years ago before this guy put this plan in, it was just an open bean field and cornfield. And he took a section of this off and saw the future plan with access right through here and uh, just a dandy spot yeah it looks good and for those you know people who wonder what miscanthus looks like after the third and fourth year this is uh this is a really good stand it, it needs to be burnt this year and then it'll come back even even better now today this is the funny one don i'm going to show you a picture here this is where i was at today I'm not going to give the whole story away because I don't want the, you know, this is probably people from the area know if I told the whole story would know exactly what farm I was on. But this farm had an old, very large, and I don't know if I would call it a mansion, but let's just say a wealthy vacation home on it that burnt down. And the house was up on the hill on the left and there's concrete steps walking down to an old tennis court. So I got a picture up right now of a grown-up tennis court with you know, two-inch diameter trees coming up through the blacktop. This is the only time I've ever put in a plan that we are going to access a tree stand through a tennis court. But the backyard of where this house was that you can't see, um, for the people watching on YouTube, but with my mouse, the, the, the food plot is back over near these big, large cedar trees with a big white oak um just off to the right and we're going to walk in on this tennis court i don't think you're going to have to worry about quiet access with this walking across old blacktop but we're going to climb up into one of these uh, cedar trees what's going to make this spot is we're going to add structure to the right side so everything coming up the saddle coming into the food plot is going to be within 20 yards of a chip shot bow shot and uh, this is, like you said, this is going to give them the opportunity to kill every buck on the property just because we're pinching it down and putting zero intrusion on this bedding as long as they don't hunt it with the wrong wind. Hmm. Well, I can't say that I've ever uh, encountered a tennis court on any of my consulting visits. So <laughs> you got one on me there. It was a first for me, that was for sure. 
All right. Well, um, what do you say uh, we uh, go ahead and tell everybody that we're going to give an update of our speaking engagements? We haven't done this for a week. Um, let's just take a quick break and do that. If you already know these, uh, feel free to hit about a two or three minute fast forward. But there is one additional March date that you need to talk about. So let me put that up and you can read through that real quick. Yeah, the ones that are left is uh, coming up is the Ship Shawana Show, February 15th, 16th, and 17th. Uh, got a lot going on there. Uh, Terry and I are going to have a live Chasing Giants podcast Thursday night. Going to play the Babe video right before our podcast. Uh, Friday is going to be the Legends Roundtable. Terry, I'll be um, moderating that. And uh, then on uh, March 4th and 5th, we got the dealer event for Real World uh, Dealers. So uh, hope to see all the dealers there. Going to have Dr. Strickland, myself, live Chasing Giants podcast. I got the bingo um sheets while i was there in, in iowa this week so that'll be a good event uh, march 9th will be the whitetail summit in greenwood delaware um if you want to attend that if you're out on the east coast you can call 720-648-0067 uh, dr strickland myself and I'm, I'm guessing i think there's a couple other speakers as well uh, march 13th is a new one just uh, made plans this week uh, fredonia Pennsylvania dealer, uh, John Allen Byler, um, been to his place before a couple years ago, but, uh, he's got a new partner in the business or, uh, sold the business to someone or something. So I'm, I'm going to help kick that off. Um, seven, two, four, four, seven, five, one, 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 one. If you're interested in going to that Fredonia, Pennsylvania event, uh, March 23rd will be the uh, Indiana Master Class in Spencerville, Indiana. April 6th will be the Wisconsin Master Class in New Richmond, Wisconsin. Uh, if you're interested in either of those, just uh, email me, Don at HigginsOutdoors.com, or give me a call and we can get you set up for that. All right, sounds great. Well, we're 20 minutes in, and we need to catch up on questions. So if it's all right with you, let's go ahead and get to that first one for the night. The first one comes from Jeremy Miller from Spiceland, Indiana. It says, hello, Don and Terry. Thank you both for the podcast and everything else you do for the hunting community. I was wondering if a mild winter like we have had through much of the Midwest this year, apart from one week, Will this raise stress levels on deer this spring and summer due to it not getting cold enough to kill off some parasites and fly larvae? was wanting to hear both you and Terry's perspective on this. Well, Jeremy, I don't think that it's going to kill any fly larvae or anything like that. I think that is a misconception that a lot of people have. They think if it's not a cold winter, we have more insects the next year. That's not the case whatsoever. You go up, I don't know if, for those guys who have been bear hunting in Canada or Alaska in the summertime and, and you've had to fight off those mosquitoes, I'm telling you, up there it gets a lot colder than it gets here and it does it every single winter. And they've got a hundred times the insects that we got. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. So if anyone's telling you that we're going to have more insects because of a mild winter, it just it doesn't even make sense uh, when you think about it. Uh, if cold was going to kill fly larvae, it'd kill them all. 
I mean, they're all out there in the, the cold, basically, so uh, not going to have any effect whatsoever. If anything, it's probably going to help antler growth because the deer aren't going to be stressed near as much um, this winter. And You know, the, speaking of stressed deer, you know, a, a lot of times antler shedding is, um, you know, caused by stress of one form or another. The bucks here on my place, I, I, I guarantee you 90% plus of the antlers are still on the deer's heads. Now, we did find a shed antler, uh, uh, where was that? We found one in Illinois this week on, on the Illinois uh, property that I was on, and we found one in Iowa as well. But uh, here at my place, most of them are still on the deer's heads, and, and that's just a sign that those deer are not stressed at all. I find it interesting that Jeremy made a point to say he wants both of our perspectives. My perspective is I'm not educated in anything insect related, so I don't have a perspective. I'll I'll stick to my pay grade as the moderator of the podcast on that question. <laughs> I'm not really an insect expert myself, but I know in Canada and Alaska they've got it gets colder than it does here and they've got more insects every year than we'll ever have. I'm sure somebody's done research at some point. And I'm sure we'll probably hear from them before next week. But uh, next one comes from Jeff Sparks from Macomb, Illinois. He says, Don and Terry, thank you for sharing your faith on this podcast every week. My question is how to create deer and specifically buck bedding in old cattle pasture that cannot be put into switchgrass due to the terrain not allowing equipment access where the bedding needs to be. I have 40 acres of weeds that get waist high and scattered trees that are mostly junk trees. Would you plant miscanthus scattered throughout, and if so, how many per group and what spacing shape? Would you hinge cut the scattered junk trees, as in this situation? I need more ground cover than sunlight. I would appreciate any insight as to the best way to produce quality bedding in this situation. I have planted some pines, but the deer browse and weed competition have made survival less than desirable. Thanks for your insights. Jeff, if I had a situation like that, without a doubt, what I would be doing is going in there and I'd be planting a bunch of potted oak trees and a, a bunch of potted cedar trees. And the oaks, I would stick with species that hold their leaves in the winter. Um, shingle oak, swamp white oak, um, pin oaks. And I would, uh, I would scatter those potted oaks all over the, the pasture. I would also, uh, you know, put about probably three cedar trees for every oak I planted, uh, get some good potted cedars. Survival on those trees should be near 100% using potted ones. Uh, make sure you spray around uh, where you're going to plant each one to kill the competing vegetation. Um, then I would allow those trees to become established for maybe three to five years and, and growing good. And once those are, then I would go in with a chainsaw and I would um, hinge cut those junk trees you're talking about to give you some ground cover. Um, and then I would go in maybe five to seven years after that, once those oaks and things have grown up, once you've got some briars coming in on their own, and eventually the trees that I hinge cut, I would go ahead and just cut them off at the ground and spray the stumps uh, so they're not competing with those oaks. But you know, if you would just do like, uh, say, 25 or so oaks per acre and uh, and then about 75 or so cedars per acre, 
it wouldn't take long and you'd have just a, a bedding thicket especially with the natural regeneration that would be happening in that pasture as well i've never seen a grown-up pasture in kentucky that lasted five years with being out being solid cedars and briars up over your head anyway i don't know what it is around down here but if you let a pasture grow up and and don't keep it mowed after you take cattle out of it the cedars just come back like crazy Mm -hmm. so in our neck of the woods it's about maintaining the cedars um, not letting them get too mature, cutting the ones that get too big that, you know, don't have any growth at the bottom two feet because then they don't do anything. They just get too big and they're not offering. It does better to just lay them on the ground. Mm-hmm. Where Jeff's at in Macomb, Illinois, it's totally different situation, more similar to me. I mean, uh, the cedars that I've got on my farm, I- I've planted 99% of them. If That's there's amazing. a volunteer cedar, it's only one or two. They're like as thick as turkeys are on my farm. It's uh, it's something we have to manage uh, yeah. as they just they overtake it. Well, a good lesson there is uh, when we give answers to questions, you know, a lot of it's going to be region specific. Um, I definitely wouldn't advise someone in your neighborhood or out in Kansas to be planting a bunch of cedar trees. They'd think I was nuts, but, you know, here they, they just don't spread. Right. Yeah, we uh, we sell a lot of uh, track skid loaders with fecon mulching heads on it to take care of them around here. That's how bad they are. We're buying my house. So, okay. So, question number three. Uh, this one comes from Dennis Isaacs from Columbus, Indiana. It says hello, Don and Terry. I want to start by saying your honest and proven deer management knowledge and hunting techniques are invaluable. You've recommended planting shorter native warm season grasses between food plots and cover like switchgrass to create a buffer transition zone making certain big bucks more huntable besides little blue stem grass what would you plant would planting forbs that deer like to eat be a good option if so which ones Uh, when planting chinese chestnut seedlings do you put tree tubes or cages around them I wonder if the increase in antler size on your property has a lot more to do with availability of non-pressured cover and nutrients than culling bucks the main reason being that it's so hard to age bucks after they're two years old thank you both for your time and sharing your faith in our savior jesus christ god's blessings to you and your families dennis isaacs whitetail master academy member well dennis you threw out about three topics there and i'll i'm sure i won't remember them all before i i get through this um so uh what was the first one again terry <laughs> It was on uh, um, the grasses Forb, and, and what to Forbes plant. Forbs in yeah. the side of your grasses. So a lot of times when I'm planting the switchgrass um, around the edge, say oh, maybe 25 feet or so, I'll have a shorter um, a grass around the edge. So basically when the deer step out of the switchgrass, they're not stepping out into a wide open plot. Now, I've got places where that's not the case, where they do step out of the tall grass right into a wide open plot. But a lot of times I will transition that down into a shorter grass and then the food plot. So he mentioned a little blue stem. Besides a little blue stem, side oats, grama is another good grass that you can plant. Um, Throw some forbs in there. Um, Illinois bundle flower is one I like. Partridge pea um, for the, the quail. Uh, that that's a couple um 
probably my two favorites. So uh, that that's that. As far as the Chinese chestnuts, yeah, tree tubes are the way to go. Um, I've grown a lot of them through the tree tubes. Um, it just puts a nice trunk on those trees, gets those br first branches up uh, out of reach of the deer, and uh, much better than a, a cage. If you put them in a cage, they, they just want to branch out a whole lot lower where they're getting sunlight. When they're in that tube, they're shooting out the top of that tube trying to reach the sunlight. Um, then the question about the increase in antler size on my property having more to do with non-pressured cover and nutrients than culling bucks. I, I think it's everything. I think it's just all those factors combined um, is the reason for it. Um, and, and I told the folks at the seminar on uh, Friday night that my situation is, I'll be the first to admit, it's very unique. Um, there's not too many properties that have the isolation that mine have and basically the protection around them. Uh, I've got these wide open ag fields for, you know, in some cases, miles in some directions before the next cover. So uh, that, that isolation is probably the number one factor. It, it's probably bigger than the culling, bigger than the cover the unpressured cover and the nutrients combined, it's the fact that I can add age to these bucks um, and with uh, less chance of them getting killed by neighbors than most properties can. And uh, again, 99.9% .9 of deer hunting properties in North America are not going to be able to accomplish what I've accomplished because they just don't lay out like this. And for the record, I didn't plan it this way. It fell into my lap. Um, I didn't realize what I had when I started, but as time has gone by, I realized that I've been extremely blessed with this property that, uh, that what I've, what I've accomplished here, I could not have accomplished on just about, again, 99.9% .9 of properties. If they would have fell in my lap, I would not have accomplished what I have on this one. So, um, I just want to be totally transparent about that. I, I tell my clients that quite a bit. I said it at the seminar the other night. I'm throwing out things that work, but how well they work is going to depend a lot on the property and the, how the property lays out. And the surrounding farms around that. Yep. You know, one of the things we did today before we even walked on the guy's property today is we got in the truck and drove around the neighborhood um, some of this farm actually had um, like one acre lots along the edge so we could see the back of the property line. He showed me which ones of those houses of people with one acre lots he went to church with or he knew that he was trying to get access to walk in, you know, through their driveway or he had a quiet cat bike that he could take around and kind of dart in. And I tell you what, that's some of the most valuable pieces we can have is understanding the neighborhood you know, going into a property to see how we can use that to help us or hurt them. All right. Sounds a little abrasive when I said help us hurt them, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to deer hunting, everybody's looking out for themselves. Um, next one comes from Brady Fox from Vermontville, Michigan. Uh, says, hi, Don and Terry. First off, I would like to compliment you both your abilities to choose your words wisely as men of Christ, but also to be direct and to the point. I feel that is the exact problem with society today. 
men and especially Christians are too afraid to state the truth with fear of hurting feelings. I have a two-part question for you guys. I recently purchased an all-wooded property which includes a marsh area in the center. I am working to implement a food plot wrapping near the swamp but staying on the highest ground possible. I would like to place a handful of fruit trees in and around the plot but worry of the area being too wet for certain types. What fruit-bearing trees do you recommend in this type of location? I have been recommended pawpaws for deer, but I also have read that deer will not find them palatable. Do you have any experience with them? Would love to hear your advice. Thank you, and I will continue the prayers for both of your families. I will end with this. Trump 2024 will be the best thing this country has seen in four years. Well, Brady, I agree with that. Um, <laughs> as far as trees in those uh, wetter swamp areas, um, you know, ironically, it brings up a, a kind of a memory of mine where I, I was on a consulting job several years ago. It, it's probably been pushing 10 years ago. And th- there had been another consultant on this property, and that, that, that consultant was being promoted heavily by the old QDMA, Quality Deer Management Association, which no longer exists. And we was in a river bottom, and that that consultant had recommended uh, uh, chestnut trees in that river bottom. And at that time, you know, I was, I still owned my tree business and was doing a lot of tree planting projects. And it just struck me that th- this guy had, no idea about chestnuts because chestnuts absolutely do not like wet feet whatsoever. And he had them planted down in this river bottom where it actually flooded several feet deep. And I knew those chestnut trees would never survive. And just uh, one of those things, you know, that it just kind of, we talked about consultants last week and all these new ones out there and everybody's, you know, got their specialties and whatever. But you need to be careful the ones you pick. The uh, in, in far in a wetter type bottom area, swampy type area, you know persimmons are probably going to do as well as anything that that you can plant as far as uh, fruiting trees. <coughs> you you want to make sure though that you use uh, grafted female persimmons. So with females, there's or with persimmons, there's males and females. And only the females are going to produce fruit. So uh, you want to make sure you use a grafted female tree. And uh, they will do, you don't want them in standing water, but they'll do pretty well in a, in a bottomland or a, an area that floods or, or gets wet, you know, part of the year. You mentioned pawpaws. I do have a few pawpaws on my farm that I planted way back 20 years or more ago. And uh, they do produce fruit. I, I think the deer do eat that fruit. I, I don't know how high it is on their preference list, but I do know they will eat it. I do know it will do well in a very uh, wet area as well. Uh, that Some of those uh, uh, really rich uh, bottomland soils that are really a, a black silt, that's the type of region where uh, a pawpaw will do really well. Gotcha. All right. We'll go on try to get through some of these question five Uh, this one comes from Jared Campbell from Milford Delaware 
Uh, says Don and Terry, thank you for everything you two do for the hunting community and try to spread the word of the Lord to people who might not understand fully, such as myself. My question is about nutrition, soil health, CWD, and your humic acid. I watched the videos you posted and am total agreement. What is the best method to incorporate humic acid on your property? Do you want to spread drill as much land as possible or concentrate it on food plots and ag fields if available? Also, you mentioned taking a personal supplement. How or where do you find it to get for personal consumption? Love the new incorporation of photos and description on the podcast. Thanks for all you do and prayers for both your families. Well, Jared, uh, trying to get enough humic acid um, all, all over your farm is going to be very expensive and very difficult. Um, personally, I'm using humic on my uh, food plots only. Um, last year, I broadcast it and then uh, just went ahead and planted my plots uh, as I would normally. Uh, my soybeans and, uh, well, actually, the only plots that I ever work the ground is my corn plots so you know I, I broadcast that then i dissed the soil and planted my corn uh, the other plots i just broadcasted on top of the ground and uh, then went ahead and no-tilled uh, using the genesis drill uh, this year i'm, I'm going to do it different to, to get that uh, humic down in the soil one of the benefits of humic on your plots is that it'll hold um, nutrients nutrients will attach to those molecules or those particles uh, and uh, it'll hold it there at a level in the soil where the plant can utilize it so instead of those nutrients leaching away through the soil it, they'll attach that humic and it, it'll hold them up there closer to the surface where the plants can utilize them so what i'm going to do this year is i'm going to apply my humic with my new g-series drill I got a new G-Series drill coming. Uh, I calibrated uh, with the old Genesis on the settings. There's a video on the Real World uh, website where you can see that. And that's going to get that humic down um, below the surface a couple of inches. And then I will come back later and I will... Um, it'll also give me a much even, more even uh, distribution of that humic than a broadcast spreader. But... uh I'll come back later and I'll just plant, you know, right in that pot. The humic already be there. Um, fertilize, and as the fertilizer leaches into the soil, those nutrients will attach to the to uh, the humic and, and be there where the plants can utilize them. So that's the, the best way for a, a land manager to utilize the humic. The other thing is uh, if you buy any real-world nutrition products, it will have humic in it. Um, the the mineral, uh, Maximizer Minerals got humic in it. The uh, new blocks that we have have uh, the humic in it. The uh, Complete Feed has humic. And the Concentrate Pellets for mixing your own feed also has humic in it. So uh, if you want to mix your own, I guess you could, uh, you could just buy the bags of humic and mix it in with your feed as well. But a much better option would probably be... Uh, the concentrate pellets which has the humic mixed in that pellets and makes it a whole lot more palatable but for the typical land manager that's going to be the best way to use humic is in your plots and in your supplemental feed and mineral and minerals are you still taking uh um humic acid don 
Oh yeah, the supplement he asked about. Yeah, I they uh, the the supplement is really good, or the humic is really good for uh, your gut health. And if you just do a, a search online, there is a hundred different brands of of humic capsules and such. I don't have one that I recommend over the other. Just uh, get on there and right there's the one I've got. Um, you just passed it. Right here on the far right, Terry. This that one, plant, plant source? Yep. Yeah, that's the one I ended up buying. But as you can see, there's a whole bunch of different ones. Um, the last thing either one of us want to do is give health advice on a exactly. podcast. <laughs> yeah, the, the way I eat and the way I take care of myself, you don't need to listen to me. But yeah, it is good. I mean, there's all kinds of, of research showing the, the benefits of it uh, for your gut health. Um, the other thing it does is is uh, toxins will attach to that um, uh, humic, and, and you know I think that's one of the the benefits for taking it is any toxins that are in your body will attach to it and then be excreted. So lots of benefits to taking those capsules. You know i I did a um, uh, the last time I I did a talk at a men's fellowship type thing, I talked about, I think I even talked about it a little bit on the podcast about how the complexity of creation. And I talked about all the different nuances, you know, you and I talked about like different small little things about the pineal gland releasing melatonin. And that's what triggers testosterone going up in the bucks that, you know, so many things are just so complicated with how creation is intertwined. But, you know, salvation's very simple, but from an agriculture standpoint, all this complexity of all of these GMOs and, you know, uh, specialized uh, seed products for different drought conditions or disease resistance, but the foundation of everything to be able to work is the pH in the soil, you know, back to soil Absolutely. health. And we can, we can overcomplicate everything so much that, uh, one simple, like teeter totter pivot point. If that's one side or the other, it throws everything out the window. Mm-hmm. And you know, as complicated as God made it, and for the agriculture to say the pivot, the the fundamental thing is soil health. I gotta believe that it ain't too far of a stretch to say the pH in our bodies is <laughs> is very Absolutely. similar. Um, so there's a lot mm-hmm. of, I think there's a lot of merit to this philosophy that we learn from, you know, soil health to, uh, plant health as it would be pH, uh, to, to our bodies and how we do it. So we're both taking it. Um, people can say we're quacks, that's fine, but it ain't going to hurt you. You're just eating dirt. Pretty much. All right. Um, My computer froze for a second. Hopefully, we're back up now. Uh, next one comes from Mike Walmhoff from Wanakee, Wisconsin. It says, Don and Terry, really enjoy the podcast. Thanks for all you do. Here in southwest Wisconsin, we have a system of snowmobile trails that go through private lands with permission from the landowners. We see a lot of deer when riding, and most times, if you don't stop, they watch you ride by. I am currently looking for more properties to purchase and have one that looks like a great possibility. It does have a snowmobile trail currently going through it. My question is, would you ever purchase a property where this was happening? 
we do have the option of denying access to the trail and forcing them to go around us, but my wife and kids enjoy snowmobiling as well as myself, and I would feel bad denying the trail access. Should I keep looking and let this one go? Mike, you mentioned that you've seen a lot of deer um, while you're riding your snowmobile, just stand and watch you. My question to you is how many times have you seen a mature buck do that? And an example I used again this week on one of my consulting visits was, you know, I told the story that I see deer in my yard almost every day at certain times of the year. And this is it. Right now, we've got deer in our yard. Well, I got the, the food plot there at my backyard. So we got deer in that food plot, and they, they wander up in the yard. My wife just commented the other day, she can't believe how much deer poop is in our yard. <laughs> Takes the dog out, and there's more deer poop in the yard than there is dog poop. So we got deer in the yard all the time, but here's the thing. In all the years of us having deer in our yard, I have never, ever seen any antlered buck in our yard, not even a year and a half old buck. A buck is a totally different animal, and that's what deer hunters, especially aspiring trophy hunters, need to realize that what you can get away with with other deer, you cannot get away with with mature bucks. And... To your question specifically, I would not want a snowmobile trail through my property. In fact, I would be the bad guy. I would deny it. And uh, I, I get it that, you know, it's a form of recreation. It's something that I don't totally understand because I don't live in the region you do. I've done a lot of consulting in Wisconsin. I've seen those snowmobile trails and the markers through farmers' fields and such for these trails. It, it's just a culture that I'm not, you know, uh, have never been a part of, so I don't totally understand it. One thing I do understand, though, is whitetails and what they will tolerate. And what a doe will tolerate, or a group of does, even a year and a half old buck, is absolutely, totally day and night different than what a mature buck is going to tolerate. And I, I promise you, he's not going to just stand there and watch snowmobiles drive by. I, I just wouldn't want it on my property. No. Um, yeah, I mean, it's we talk about it over and over till we're blue in the face. A, a mature buck's just different, and um, you got to hunt different. If you want to kill them, you do. Last. All one. right. Next one comes from Patrick Stryker from Bartelso, Illinois. Says Don and Terry, appreciate all the time and insight you put into this podcast. I have a couple of questions for you on real-world switchgrass. We drilled six acres of real-world switchgrass into a cut bean field in late April of last year. The same day applied simazine after planting. Weed control was great until late June. With minimal rains, it seemed the weeds began to grow faster than the switch, mainly being broadleaves. We sprayed the field with 2,4-D the end of July to, to combat. Very impressed with the germination and stand of the first year real-world switchgrass thus far, being around three foot tall at the end of July with not so impressive but timely rains this past summer. The questions I have are mainly for this year, second year. Have you ever burned a stand of switch the following year after planting? If no, why? My second question, I have heard you mention in a past podcast to lay off nitrogen 
for the first year to let the grass concentrate on root establishment. Have you ever or do you recommend applying nitrogen to second year switch or should we apply herbicide when needed and let nature take its course? Last, if I burn one year old switchgrass, can I go in and plant more miscanthus for structure or will that one year old switchgrass choke out that young miscanthus? Appreciate your time. Um, I'm going to leave this up so you can just yeah, get through the questions. I'm telling you what, these guys that throw out three questions at a time have get me confused. So uh, the, the first question, have you ever burned first year? Yeah, I burned first year plantings which is basically you're doing it a year after the planting. You, you plant it one spring and the next year you're planting or you're burning it. When I do that, it's typically because of a weed issue. And most of the time it's foxtail. You get a, a stand of foxtail, that stuff will burn. Um, and it'll burn very well. And you can, by burning it, you get rid of all that seed on those foxtail heads and and a lot of that seed that, that also fell on the ground gets burned up as well. So, yeah, you, you can burn a first-year stand. Um, and if you got serious weed issues and you got enough fuel there to carry a fire, it's typically not a bad idea. Uh, your next question was about nitrogen, applying nitrogen to the switchgrass. You know, I've never fertilized my switchgrass at all. Um, I just never felt the need to because um, my soils are... are, are you know, pretty decent, to, you know, pretty fertile. So I just don't feel the need to. Um, you, you certainly could. I think you, you're you probably uh, better off trying to control those weeds for the first couple of years and get the, the switchgrass growing. And, and then when it's mature, if you're not getting the, the height and thickness out of it that you'd like to see, then you could probably go in and, and apply some nitrogen and increase that uh, by a good little bit. Um, then you asked about planting miscanthus uh, in that first year switchgrass planting, and that that's absolutely the, the time to plant that miscanthus is basically right before you plant the switchgrass to begin with. Um, I, I would go in with like a tree seedling planter and uh, plant that switchgrass or that miscanthus, and then as soon as you're done, go right over the top of it with your no-till drill and plant the switchgrass. In this case, you're talking about you already have the switchgrass planted. You planted it a year ago. Now you want to get some, some miscanthus in there. Yeah, I think you could do that uh, without any problems. Um, yeah, there's going to be a lot, a little bit of competition from the switchgrass, but that miscanthus will take care of itself. And, uh, you do that the you year know, you burn, though? Yeah, I, if I was going to put that miscanthus in this year, I would go ahead and burn the, the plot. Uh, the switchgrass that you've got to put that in in standing switchgrass would be really tough. Absolutely, I, mean, I, don't, I don't even know how you get your tree seedling planter through it, much less. But the year you burn, you can. You did that on the back piece at your place. The year we burnt that, Jay came in and planted strips in it. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the more that switchgrass becomes established, the harder it's going to be for you to get a a stand of miscanthus in it. So do it early, ideally bef before you plant the switchgrass. But, you know, a year in, I, I don't think that that switchgrass is established enough. It's going to cause you too much trouble. I don't think people understand how deep the roots go on these on these um, these grasses. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they go in the ground as deep as they come up out of the ground. Right. 
All right. Well, I think that was the last part of that question and the last question of the podcast tonight. We got caught back up a little bit. I've seen a couple good ones that have come through for next week, so I'm excited to hear you talk about a couple of those. But uh, we're going to wrap it up here. What else you got going on this week coming up? Well, I'm headed to far southern Indiana um, tomorrow after church. I got a consultation there on Monday morning. And then I'm headed to Ohio, and I've got uh, uh, four or five in Ohio next week as well. We've got a couple smaller properties where I can do two in one day, but I think I've got five in all in Ohio and then back home. And depending on when I get home, I may go to Missouri next weekend. So yep. trying to get as many. I told Robin today I'm going to wipe out as many as I can in February because I have a feeling we might have an early spring. And I want to be home and working on my projects instead of on the road doing consulting. Well, I can go ahead and tell everybody with your the, your schedule coming up in mind this week, I am not sure when next week's podcast is going to air. We'll do our best to have it, but I leave out Wednesday night and I'm on farms Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I'm going to visit for some, uh, actually I'll be down with Kevin Miller next week so um get to go to church with them down there and and visit with them all weekend but i we're going to do our best to record it and get it up at the normal time but don't start sending us hate mail if it's not up at the normal time we get people that get a little antsy if it's uh five minutes late which is good but uh just be aware next week's podcast we'll do our best to coordinate but we'll both be on the road this week as we try to record that might be really difficult. Um, cause I, I'm going to be in a motel just about every night, so yep, we'll, we'll figure me. it out. Same with me. Um, we might end up being audio only next week. I don't know. Well, uh, the video pulls a lot. Even Don at your house and my house, we'll we'll have all of a sudden the screens go blurry just where the internet, you know, fluctuates a little bit. So recording on this platform pulls a lot of bandwidth. So. Doing that in a hotel room, we'll see how it goes. But just be aware, it might even be just audio next week. We'll do the best we can. Yep. All right. Well, make sure if you want to see this uh, Legends Roundtable or come see us in Shipshawana, uh, I would really like to just blow that show up. It's such great people that put that on. There's always great food there. But how many times will you ever get to see Bobby Worthington and who else is there? You, Joe Miles, Wenzel, Al Foster, Gene and Barry Wenzel, Al Foster on the stage at one time. And, uh, I mean, this is the, the tribal knowledge of mature buck hunting has never been so saturated on one stage in any event that I've ever seen. So I really, really hope that a bunch of people come out and support this. This is, uh, this this is some of the pioneers in true, you know, mature buck hunting is going to be on there. And, you know, some of Don's mentors that's helped you pretty much develop what you are doing every day, teaching my generation. You know, Wes and I are learning from you. Well, those guys taught me. I remember writing Gene Wenzel letters when I was a teenager, handwritten letters that he would return handwritten letters back. Um, Al Foster knew him since I was a teenager, took me under his wing and saved me. I say all the time, he shaved 10 years off the learning curve for me. So 
and kept uh, you out Bobby of jail. Bobby Worthington. What's that? <laughs> uh, he, he tried, didn't he? He was a he was a good influence back in the day, and I needed it. I, I needed it really bad. But all right. Hope to well, see everybody there. You, thanks for y'all support, everybody. We'll do our best for next week. Just an FYI, we'll we're not sure what we're gonna have from the hotel room. So, thanks for your support. God bless everyone. See you next week. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, Via Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.